First Samuel chapter 29. Beginning in verse one, it says, then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek and the Israelites encamped by a fountain, which is in Jezreel. And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands. But David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, what are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me these days or these years? And to this day, I have found no fault in him since he defected to me. But the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him and do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile himself to his master, if not with the heads of these men? Is this not David, of whom they sang to one another in dances, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Achish called David and said to him, <clears throat> Surely as the Lord lives, you have been upright, and your going out and your coming in with me in the army is good in my sight. For to this day I have not found evil in you since the day of your coming to me. Nevertheless, the Lord do not favor you. Therefore, return now. Go in peace, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. So David said to Achish, what have I done? And to this day. What have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? Then Achish answered and said to David, I know that you are as good in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go with us to battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. So David and his men rose early to depart in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. And the Philistines went up to Jezreel. By now, you've probably figured out that the scriptures have a reoccurring theme and a reoccurring principle about when it comes to moving away from the Lord. When you begin to move away from the Lord, when you depart from the truth, when you abandon Christ, we move in the direction of trouble. Remember like the music man? Which rhymes with P, which stands for, no, which rhymes with T and stands for P, which stands for pool. No, I'm just kidding. It's one of those situations where you understand something. That you can't turn from God and not have a direction to go. David had fled into the Philistines' land to provide relief from this never-ending battle with Saul. And remember his excuse for going there. He needed some pressure. He needed some relief from the pressure. Now, by the way, both David and Saul have several things in common. Both were anointed by God. Both were mightily used by God. Both 
were led away from the Lord. Now, the Lord is no longer willing to intervene in Saul's life. But God remains willing to intervene in the life of of David. Why? Because God has a plan. God has a plan for David. David is going to be used by God to make a provision for all of humanity. Saul's hard heart was unwilling to turn to the Lord in repentance. But David's heart, even though it's damaged, is going to be broken over his own sin. David's heart will become a willing heart to obey God. And that's one of the things that we require It's a constant examination of our heart, isn't it? We have to ask and answer constantly, where am I at with God? How am I doing with the Lord? How do I characterize my relationship and my fellowship with the Lord? We want to experience grace and we want to experience the joy of Jesus Christ, David's son. But I need to ask you a question. Have you ever gotten into a mess Because you moved away from the Lord. You were doing good, but then you turned around and you started going in a direction. And pretty soon you found yourself in a position where you had no business being. If you've ever gotten into a mess because you moved away from the Lord. And if you've ever gotten into a mess and indulged your sin... And if you've ever gotten into a mess and indulged your sin and God showed up anyway and his grace intervened in your life and his mercy intervened in your life because you could have gone way further down the road and you didn't. We've all heard the saying, it's darkest before the dawn. It was Winston Churchill who was fond of saying, if you are going through hell, keep going. That makes perfect sense. David is in a dark place in his life. But the light is about to come up. And David finds himself in what looks like a hopeless position of of hopeless compromise. Because of his sin and because of his disobedience and because he finds himself in the land of the Philistines, he's going to be placed into the worst of all positions, and that's with the possibility that he himself might have to fight against the very children of Israel. It's like those old Laurel and Hardy movies. This is a fine mess you've gotten us into. And sometimes we get ourselves into very big messes. So how low can a person go? When we first met David, the armies of Israel were camped in the valley of Elah, facing off a much stronger enemy. And David defied the Philistine champion Goliath. And now David is a Philistine bodyguard. And when we first met David, he had very few resources. But he had a wealth of faith and confidence and trust in the Lord. Now he's a relatively wealthy man. With little faith, little confidence, little trust. Now David is in Aphek. That's what it says in in verse 1. Then the Philistines gathered together all their armies at Aphek. Now you may not know where that is, but uh, it's in one of the northern encampments of the Philistine territory. 
He's joined himself to the pagan king David has. And what's going on in David's mind? David is on the opposite side of the king who wants to take his life. On one side of the plain of Jezreel is David's soulmate. Now think about this for just a moment. David is camped with the enemies of God and across this valley on the other side of the valley are the armies of Israel and his own soulmate, Jonathan. Is he going to really, truly raise his sword against his family and against his friends? Can you imagine the agony he must have felt as he remembered the sweet fellowship of times past? You know, sometimes people backslide to the point where the only thing that will keep that person from sinking deeper into sin is the grace of God. And I'm sure that there are several reasons why people do what they do. I know that there are several reasons why people cease to trust God or cease to depend upon God. Or they follow a path of personal self-indulgence and the chastening hand, the disciplining hand of God begins to move on their life. But you can imagine that David is in a place of profound sorrow. Does personal sin and personal failure mean that God is no longer in control? No. God's still in control. God is still going to order the outcomes of the circumstances. Remember in the earlier chapter, Saul has visited a witch. The witch has, has, has allegedly called up Samuel, but we know better that it is God who has allowed Samuel to come and speak and, and order judgment on Saul We all experience times when God's presence feels far away. And I suspect that that's exactly what David was experiencing. Where is God? Where is the Lord? Where is the Lord in my life? You'll remember that in the New Testament, Jesus told his own disciples, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You know what that tells us? That even when you don't experience the presence of God, even though you, you feel like God is far away, you feel like his blessing is far away, you feel like his comfort is far away, the Lord is there. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as has a contrite heart. One of the ways that you know oddly enough, that the Lord is near, is that the brokenness and the humility has begun to take its toll on your, on your heart. You see, David knew something that you should know. David was called to be different. And you're called to be different. You're not called to be like everyone else in the world. You know, recently... Over Well, and over the years, there's a guy named George Barna, and he does statistical evaluations, and Barna compares the behaviors and the attitudes of Christians with non-Christians, and he concludes, quote, we think and behave no differently from anyone else. And these statistics are alarming and concerning. When Barna was doing his survey, he discovered something. He did a, a, a survey of a group of people, and he, and, and, and he started thinking about behaviors. Here's what he discovered. 
Born-again Christians who have been divorced, 27%. Non-Christians who have been divorced, 23%. Born-again Christians who gave money to a homeless person or a poor person in the last year, born-again Christians, 24%. Non-Christians, 34%. Took drugs or medications prescribed for depression, born-again Christians, 7%. Non-Christians, 8%. Watched an X-rated movie. Born-again Christians, 9%. Non-Christians, 16%. Donated any money to any non-profit in the past month. Born-again Christians, 47%. Non-Christians, 48%. Bought a lottery ticket. Born-again Christians, 23%. Non-Christians, 27%. Attended a community meeting at a local, on a local issue. Born-again Christians, 37%. Non-Christians, 42%. That had the attitude or felt completely good or very successful about their life and their circumstances. Born again Christian says 58% said, I feel really good about my circumstances. Non Christians, 49% said, I feel really good about my circumstances. Um, impossible to get ahead because of financial debt. Born again Christian says, it's impossible for me to get ahead. 33%. Non Christians, 39%. Still trying to figure out the purpose of your life. Born again Christians, 36% said, I'm still trying to figure out the purpose of my life. And by the way, if you ever get a survey and a person says they're from Barna Research and they ask you, what is the purpose of your life? I need to be able to help you with the right answer. The purpose of your life is to glorify God. This is not hard. Two words. Glorify God. That's the purpose of your life. I can't believe so many Christians got it wrong. Non-Christians, 47%. I can believe how they get it wrong. Your personal financial situation is getting better and better. Born-again Christians, 27%. Non-Christians, 28%. When born-again Christians were asked, are you satisfied with your life today? 69% said yes. When non-Christians were asked, are you satisfied with your life today? 68% said yes. How are we to think about this? How are we to think about the fact that from a superficial standpoint, there doesn't seem to be a dime's bit of difference between those people who identify themselves as Christians and those who don't identify themselves as Christians when it comes to the things that they actually do every day. Barna also shed some light on the definition of God that most Americans claim to believe in. He says, and I quote, since more than nine out of ten Americans own at least one Bible and 86 percent call themselves Christian, you might expect people to pay homage to the deity described and followed by the Christian church. In July 1997, we asked a nationwide sample of 1,012 adults to describe the God they believe in. Two out of three adults, that's 67%, said they believe that God is the all-knowing, all-powerful creator of the universe who rules the world today. The remaining one-third described their small G.O.D. as, quote, the total realization of personal human potential. Others said 
a state of higher consciousness that a person may reach. Some said, everyone is God. There are many gods, each with different power and authority. Some said, there is no such thing as God. The remaining 5% said, we don't know. Isn't that interesting? According to Barna, a third of Americans, 33% of Americans really don't believe in God after all. And in spite of all the sermons about how belief makes a difference in the life of the individual, the numbers show that Christians don't really believe it, or at least a great number of them do. That the way you live and the way you act and the way you respond doesn't matter. And in 1 Samuel chapter 29, as David finds himself in the midst of a circumstance where he is acting just like everybody else, all of a sudden we, we get at least an insight, a glimpse into what might be taking place. As a matter of fact, later in, in the New Testament, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul the Apostle will write, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with darkness or lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? That means with demons. Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? It's his way of saying, how is it possible that Christians look, act, think, behave exactly like their unbelieving counterparts. Separation doesn't always mean isolation. But the Bible says that we're to be different. Jesus, in the New Testament, is described as a friend of sinners and is described as a friend of those who are in need. Yet Jesus remains holy and blameless and undefiled. So how do we become friends of sinners and those in need and yet remain holy and blameless and undefiled? Somehow our life and our testimony and our circumstances need to be substantially different from the unbelieving world. And so when you come to, the, to, the, to this dark period in David's life as he's camped on opposite sides in this great confrontation, it says in verse 2, And the lords of the Philistines passed in review by hundreds and by thousands, but David and his men passed in review at the rear with Achish. Then the princes of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the princes of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who's been with me these days or these years? We know from um, doing the math that David was at least with Achish, the king, for one year and four months or about 16 months. But when you're totally backslidden, when you're living a life of carnality, when you're living a life of rebellion and disobedience, the time really goes by quickly. David has been pursued all over the land. David has been a man on the run as far east as Mitzpah in Moab in 1 Samuel 22. As far west as Gath, the Philistine capital. As far north as Aphek. 
Even the Philistines, even the Philistines know that David doesn't belong with them. And even the unbelievers, even the unbelievers know that you don't belong in certain places, in certain circumstances. Has anyone ever said to you, what, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? You know, it makes perfect sense that this person would be here or that person would be here. But I didn't think that I would find you under the mistletoe with someone other than your husband or your wife. I didn't think that I would see you at this party. Didn't you know that the eggnog is spiked? Does it matter if you go to a party? No, it doesn't. But you need to understand something. All of them remember what a terrible enemy David and the Philistine lords know that David can't be trusted. How can you be so mightily used by God, create such a problem against the enemies of God, and then just say it really didn't matter? Even the pagan, Dagon-worshipping, uncircumcised Philistines realize there's something wrong with this picture. And so David now finds himself in a place where he thought he would never be among the ungodly, ready to fight against God's people. And that's what will happen when you distance yourself from the Lord or you walk away from the Lord or you walk in the, in the, in the direction of rebellion and disobedience. When we sin, when we backslide, when we turn away from the things of God... Sooner or later, you're going to find yourself in a circumstance that you never, ever dreamed that you would ever be in ever again. And so, when the Philistine leaders realize what David is blind to, you don't belong here. Now think about that for just a moment. When someone in the world is willing to say to you, You serve a different God. You live in a different world. You're designed for a different purpose. The kings and the princes of the Philistines knew that David worshipped a different God, served a different purpose, lived in a different land. The Philistine leaders are ready to admit what David himself is not even willing to admit about himself. Don't you find that strange? You know you're in trouble when people in the world say to you, you don't belong here. When that happens, it's time to examine your conscience. Are you a Christian who would rather identify with people in the world, the unbeliever in the world? Do you love the things of this world more than you love the Lord? Now, again, one of the most remarkable things about this passage is God uses the fear and the suspicion and the anger and the bad taste in the mouth of the Philistine leaders to keep David from sinking further and further and further into sin. And by the way, if an unbeliever has ever kept you from sinking deeper and deeper And deeper into personal sin. You should thank God for him or her. 
hey, I know who you are and I know what you believe. And guess what? I'm not going to let you do that. Or at least I'm not going to cooperate with you in the plan. David refused to be led by the strong hand of the Lord, and he refuses to be led by the eye of the Lord. And so think about it for just a moment. God will use the pride and the jealousy of the Philistine leaders to cut short David's little adventure into deeper and deeper sin. And Achish, the king, tries to stick up for his good buddy David. Hey, David has been with me, you know, for these 16 months. Can you imagine? Here's Akish. He has completely crossed over to the dark side. His rebellion and disobedience is complete. Instead of following light, he is following darkness. He has become one of us. Now, I want you to think about that. Imagine your unbelieving friend says, I have been with him, I have been with her these past 16 months, and he or she has completely and totally and, and convincingly acted like an unbeliever. Would you be proud of that? Think about it. That's where David is. But even in the midst of all of this, God has a plan. God has unfinished business with David. And the plan doesn't include playing a nursemaid or bodyguard to the Philistine king. And it never, ever included becoming an enemy of God's people. And God has a plan for you. And it never included being an enemy of God's people. And the promises of God and the things of God. God wants you to advance the kingdom of God, not camp in the enemy's camp. And even people in the world realize the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness are not compatible with one another. It says in verse 4, but the princes of the Philistines were angry with him. So the princes of the Philistines said to him, Make this fellow return that he may go back to the place which you have appointed for him. That's Ziklag, by the way. And we're going to see more about that in the next chapter. And do not let him go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become our adversary. For with what could he reconcile to himself, to his master, if not with the heads of these men? What would be the best bridge for David to make a comeback among the people of Israel? Well, it's to kill us as enemies. So David is sent back to Ziklag. And the princes aren't content to have him in their land. And now I want you to think about it. David is now a man without a country. He's a refugee. He's a displaced person. And because he's a man without a country, because he's a displaced person, you can imagine that David begins to wrestle with his own identity. I want you to think about this for a moment. Imagine your Christian friends don't believe you're a Christian. And your unbelieving friends don't believe you're an unbeliever. What? Now you understand why the carnal Christian, the backslidden Christian, the Christian who has one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God is in the worst possible position of all. The devil doesn't trust you and God can't use you. 
So David is wrestling with his own identity. And in verse 7, it says, Therefore return now and go in peace that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And in verse 8, it says, So David said to Achish, But what have I done? Haven't I been a perfect undercover criminal? And to this day, what have you found in your servant as long as I've been with you that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? David asks the question, what have I done? Go ahead and ask it. Well, what haven't you done, David? What are the depths of depravity that you've sunk to? You've left the land. You've left the Lord. You've embraced darkness. You have created a web of lies, you're killing men, women, and children in order to cover up your tracks. David, what is it that you have? What haven't you done? I want to ask you a question. Do you think David is satisfied with his life right at this moment? It's okay to answer. Pretend like it's a Pentecostal church and you can talk with me. Yes or no? Is he satisfied? Does he strike you as being satisfied? By the way, when you have been in the midst of carnality and wickedness, detached from God, the things of God, the promises of God, the hope that's in Christ, satisfied? Fulfilled? David isn't satisfied. Not only is David wrestling with his own identity, David is wrestling with disillusionment. Sometimes Christians find themselves in exactly the same position. Am I a Christian or am I not a Christian? My Christian friends say that I've lost my salvation. My unbelieving friends believe that there's something not quite right with me. I'm not good enough to be with the Christians and I'm not bad enough to be with the unbelievers. Where do I belong? David was once an asset and now he's a liability. And Achish admits that he hasn't done anything wrong. But the Philistine princes fear David and his men. They fear him and they fear his men because they understand how easily they could turn on them in the battlefield and become their adversaries. And this becomes a key concept for the Christian who wants to fit in with the world. The Christian who wants to fit into the world is going to be facing the constant suspicion, but you're really not in the world. You've let the cat out of the bag you've suggested to me that there are things that you care about that we don't care about by the way you've probably also realized that backsliding doesn't pay very well does it if you've ever walked away from the lord for even a little while If you've ever woken up one morning and decided to indulge your sin and indulge yourself and do whatever it is that you felt like you needed to do, it can be a little intoxicating. Wow, I can do whatever I want. I can feel whatever I want. I can be whatever I want. By the way, when you wake up and you decide to take a little journey away from the Lord and away from Christ, is there a price that you have to pay? 
There is. The Bible says that the wages of sin are death. And someone will have to pay for your sins. And your sin bill will come due. It's when you start paying that bill that not only does depression and disillusionment set in, but that's when the identity crisis becomes the greatest. I want you to imagine someone foolish enough who would say, it's Christmas time and I don't have any money. So what I'm going to do is I am going to charge all of my Christmas presents on this charge card, even though I don't have a job and I don't have much of a prospect of getting a job anytime soon. Is that a smart thing or a wise thing to do? Is it an unwise thing to do and a not very smart thing to do? Because there are those of you who are sitting there shaking your head knowing that January, the bill is going to come due, isn't it? And the bill and the expectation are going to be there. Beware the bill when it comes with interest. And when disillusionment brings forth fruit, it looks a whole lot like depression. And that's what you're going to see in the not too distant future. No wonder the Philistine kings and the princes say, he's not going to go to battle with us. Former president used to say, not going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. The Philistine princes don't trust David. The Philistine princes don't trust Achish's judgment on this particular person. And like every backslidden, half-hearted, lukewarm Christian, David finds himself in an impossible situation. As a matter of fact, Jesus talks about this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 16. When he speaks to the carnal church, he says, So then, because you are lukewarm, because you are neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. (laughs) If David's son were there, he would say, You don't belong here. In the not too distant future, that's exactly where you might find yourself. In a circumstance where you don't belong. Now, I want you to think just for a moment what the Lord has done for David. David, even in this circumstance, has been spared the shame and the guilt and the agony and the sorrow of attacking his own people. I want to ask you a question. It's kind of a hard question. Has God ever spared you from some unspeakable horror? Where you could have made a decision. A decision of rebellion and disobedience and the Lord through channels that were that you couldn't even anticipate. Close the door for you so that you couldn't go further and further and further into your sin. Let me give you an example. Imagine you're going to go someplace because you're going to commit some unspeakable sin or some unspeakable horror and you're driving along and before you have an opportunity to to commit that unspeakable sin or unspeakable horror you are in a car accident and your car flips over and now you find yourself in the hospital for two weeks and you 
pray something really lame. Lord, why did you allow this accident to happen? I'm going to tell you why I allowed this accident to happen. It's so you wouldn't go further and further into a place of personal darkness and rebellion and sin. God wants to spare you a guilty conscience. God wants to spare you from that carnal relationship, from that miserable job, from those devastating circumstances. It's God trying to limit your guilty conscience. God doesn't want you to get used to sin. And listen carefully. God doesn't want you to get away with sin. Does that seem to make sense to you? God doesn't want you to get used to sin. And God doesn't want you to get away with sin. And so he provides a savior. And David. (laughs) David is asked to leave. Look what it says. Then Achish answered and said to David, hey, I know that you're as good in my sight as an angel of God. That's his way of saying like an avenging angel. Nevertheless, the princes of the Philistines have said he shall not go with us to battle. Now, therefore, rise early in the morning with your master's servants who have come with you. And as soon as you are up early in the morning and have light, depart. He's going to go back, by the way, to Ziklag. David's fired. That's what's happening. David, think about this, the sweet psalmist of Israel, the slayer of Goliath, he's laid off. Now, now again, think about this. He's rejected by Saul and he's rejected by his unbelieving friends. David thinks... No doubt that he has no place to go and no place to be. (laughs) What a horrible place to be in your Christian friends doubt your salvation and your unbelieving friends doubt if you're really lost. A carnal, half-hearted, lukewarm, self-deceived, backslidden Christian doesn't belong anywhere. And the carnal Christian doesn't feel comfortable doing the things of God, but is not completely comfortable doing the things the world's way. And again, is in this catastrophic circumstance. David has sown the wind. And now he's reaped the whirlwind. David is a Hebrew. David is an Israelite. Deep inside, in the very core of his being, he's God's man. He might be going through an identity crisis. But it's a crisis that isn't going to last long. I don't know if you've ever gone through an identity crisis. Where you asked yourself, who am I really? In the deepest part of my heart. And in the deepest part of my soul. Am I a person who deeply loves the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I a person who has walked away from my sin and embraced a life of love and forgiveness and redemption? Am I God's man or God's woman? Who am I? But imagine through a series of circumstances you haven't been acting like a real Christian. My advice? Repent. Forsake your sin. 
on my radio program, a guy called in today and he said, do you know, I heard you earlier say to a person, repent of their sin. You can't do that. I go, watch me. Repent of your sin. There's a reoccurring theme that takes place even from the time where Jesus rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. The first preacher, Peter, preaches, repent of your sin. Turn to Christ. Forsake your sin. Allow the work of God and the presence of God and the Holy Spirit of God to transform your life. David took a wrong fork in the road. He sinned. And he sinned in a big way. But God took him back. David has been living a lifestyle utterly inconsistent, utterly incompatible with his real identity as a man of God. No wonder he's so mixed up. No wonder he's experiencing such inner turmoil. No wonder he's sick. No wonder he's miserable. David will come to a place of utter and unmistakable despair. He's lost his identity. And that's what exactly what happens when you backslide and you turn away. You take a journey away from the Lord. Now here's the idea. When you decide to turn your back on the Lord, it doesn't take long for you to question everything. Am I or am I not a Christian? What is my mission? Where do my loyalties lie? These are the tough questions for the man or the woman who's running away from God. I've always been amazed at how God uses broken things for his glory. It was a broken box of ointment that sued the body of Jesus before he died. Mary Magdalene took a box of ointment, broke the box, and used it to soothe Jesus. Gideon used broken pots and pans to confuse and disorient the enemies of the children of God. David's experiences prove that when we come to the end of our rope, we can usually find the rope of faith to hold on to. Our extreme circumstance becomes God's opportunity. It was Alan Redpath who said, when we come to the end of ourselves, we are at the threshold of a new world of discovery and adventure in the will and the purpose of God. You don't know where to go and you don't know what to do and you don't know where to turn to. You know, there's an interesting scripture in the Old Testament that when you feel far away from God, it doesn't necessarily mean that God is far away. When God spoke to Moses about the people possessing the land, that when any of the outcasts, an outcast being a person who because of sin and disobedience and apostasy, an outcast is a person who is outside of the friendship and outside the fellowship of God. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 4. It says, if any of you are driven out to the farthest parts under heaven... From there, the Lord your God will gather you. And from there, he will bring you. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed. And you shall possess it. He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. You know what Deuteronomy 30 verses 4 and 5 is really saying? Even if you find yourself way, way far away. In a place where you don't belong. In a place where you never belonged. 
Understand that there's a place for you in the family of God and in the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, the land was the place that you occupied as you occupied the promises of God. In the New Testament, we possess Jesus Christ. He is our promise, the land. He is the fulfillment of faith and forgiveness and hope and restoration. And a promise is given to you. That he's never any further than a willingness to turn around and go back where you belong. You know, as a shepherd, I often am listening to those very words from people. I want to come back. Hey, make no mistake about it. Then you find yourself in a place of brokenness. And humility. And a willingness to turn from your sin. And to turn to your Savior. By the way. That emptiness and that loneliness. And that desire to be in the place where God wants you to be. As it fills your heart reminds me of something. That God knows the plan that he has for you. And still desires to fulfill it. By the way. In the next chapter. David will return to Ziklag. In the next chapter, he will experience what I'm calling the worst day of his life. In the next chapter, I'm entitling it, Ten Things to Do on the Worst Day of Your Life. And the next chapter is going to be the worst day of David's life, but on the worst day of David's life, there's going to be a radical transformation that takes place as David understands something that he has to fundamentally change in his heart. Why? For all the reasons that you know. David isn't just David, the king of Israel. David is going to be the future father of the famous child who would be born David's son. Oh, but that's tomorrow night. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, I know that sometimes when we find ourselves far away from you. And we wander into circumstances where we don't belong. And the consequences of our wickedness and rebellion begins to find us out. Lord, we thank you that you are a good God and a gracious God and a loving God. Lord, we thank you that the Bible is still true, that if we confess our sin, that you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That, Lord, when Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you, he meant it. And so that even in that dark place and even in that empty place and even in that lonely place and even in that place of rebellion and disobedience, you're willing to take us back. And Lord, I pray for that person who perhaps finds themselves in that exact circumstance. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you. Lord, I pray that that as they wrestle with those questions, who am I? What is my mission? Where do I belong? 
that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will reveal to them the answer. You belong to me. You always belong to me. You've been bought with a price, not with gold or silver, not with things that disappear or perish, but even with the precious blood of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.